Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Blog Talk Radio. If I speak for your followers, and I speak for your ex-followers, and I speak for the curious outsiders looking in, and you remain silent in the shadows and don't let your balls drop enough to come out and say something, then I say, who do you speak for, Mr. Miscavige? Anything on earth that says, don't listen to your mom and dad, don't talk to your mom and dad, that's bad. Yeah, wrong. Absolutely believe his own bullshit. Now... Does that mean he believed it from day one? I don't know. Hubbard reveals to them that he is the Antichrist. Scientology has not helped you. You have helped yourself. Yes, I'm absolutely positive that happened because I was physically abused in Scientology. We're crossing the line into torture. Do you think there is a rape culture in Scientology? I think that there is a culture in Scientology that Children are not children. So, yeah. And welcome to Come Get Some Extra Scientology Edition here on this Friday. I am Chris Crummy, Miami Six Man on Twitter. And you can follow the show at CGS underscore extra. CGS, of course, being for Come Get Some. If you want to email the show, you want to email me. I know you guys know how to find me. I've been getting some contacts, but it's uh, CGS here at gmail.com. And uh, wow, this whole thing with the the sexual assaults is getting to be a big story. And uh, that's something we talk about today with Miriam. Now, uh, I have a lot of thoughts. I have a lot of thoughts and a lot of opinions to say on it. But I remember... Uh, roughly two years ago, talking to a friend who had revealed to me uh, that she had been sexually harassed or assaulted. And there was something I said that I thought was a positive, reinforcing, friendly thing to that person. And she said, look, I know what you meant by it. But you can't say that to a rape victim. And I said, oh, I'm sorry. I didn't know. And uh, I said, well, Conversation continued, and I gave some thoughts. She goes, no, you can't say that either. And um, I don't think she was being difficult, and I understand this is something that's uh, sensitive. So I came away from this, not to be cynical, but I came away from this discussion thinking, okay, as someone who's never been there or had to deal with all that goes with that process or with that uh, criminal act, and uh, you know, I'm not somebody who should talk about it at all. Uh, that's why I'm grateful that there's people um, like Miriam, uh, brave enough to talk, uh, brave enough to talk because nobody, not even I, as someone who's ever been through it, don't, I don't want to talk about that kind of stuff. But it's important, and it needs to be. Uh, what I will say, um, while I 
urge people to report it to the police. Uh, I never would shame someone for not reporting to the police. I think that's a terrible thing. I'm seeing that uh, in droves online, and a lot of people saying, hey, you need to report that right away, and if you don't, you're on you. No, 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 you don't do that. You don't do that. And then there's the people who will see someone like Matt Lauer and go, well, he's a colleague of mine, and I feel bad for him, and you know, it's not that big, big a deal, but it is, and he admit to it. And you know, in politics, of course, you know, like, who, how could somebody being violated not be more important than the tax cut vote you need from way more? And what's the, what's the, what's the political party have to do with this kind of thing? Do you really want that? And a public official office, and then I remember, oh, that's oh, you know, if you don't know about our president, research our president and sexual assault claims. Um, but I digress. <laughs> uh, let's get into it. Let's go ahead and let's um, um, forget these these people, these horrible people who uh, who seem to be against victims getting help. Uh, so let's talk to an actual survivor. Let's talk to a hero. It's your part two, right where we left off with Mary and Francis. Um, but yeah, I mean, definitely the idea that we were assets that was completely drilled into us from day one, being growing up in the shadows. We were always um, assets for the organization. We were trained and groomed to be that way. That's what we were raised to do. Okay, here's um, uh, another reference to 1979 regarding the cadet orb. Um, it says, no order to a child or about a child must be permitted to go offline. Parents must pass any order not to the child, but through the BO cadet who may alter or cut it off program. Is that suggesting, that, is that, suggesting that you don't have direct contact with your children and you may be stopped from having contact? That's what it's saying? Yeah, and wow. even if you do, um, so they have to pass on an order not to the child, but through the CO cadet who may alter it. So the CO cadet has the ultimate say here, not the parent, who may alter it or cut it off program. Or cut it, sorry, cut it if off program. So now this might be like um, a parent, I don't know, general parent, child to do such and such, and the CO cadet says, well, this isn't part of our program. Wow. So uh, the parent does not have ultimate say uh, in the raising of the child. And then it also says, any discipline goes through the cadet or has an MEA. Any comment with media evidence is committed, committed only by children. So again, the discipline and the justice actions that occur uh, are not in consultation with any parent. It's all done internally. Is it at the discretion of the adults, right? Yeah, well, this is says committed only by children. So then you have children, um, you know, in, um, deciding on justice actions oh, wow. against other children. Where, you know, where Sinus said it was like the Lord of the Flies. Mm -hmm. It really sort of was like that. Because um, we had our own sort of, like, leadership structure. We had our own organizing Everyone had a position, and it was the kids that were 
um, you know, like kids worked in the galley and created all the meals, like when we were at the, at the ranch. That's crazy. Um, we did all the services that normally an adult, there would be adult positions, you know, but that, then that costs money, right? So they don't, they don't want to pay, provide any money for that. So the, the children are capable enough to cook all the food for all the other children. They're also capable enough to run the organization themselves. And, yeah, that's uh, for, for For anybody yeah. who doesn't get this, and tell me if I'm off base on this, this is no different than a sweatshop type mentality. The kids, in the sweatshop, these people are being paid 10 cents at least. <laughs> I mean, it's the same yeah. kind of thing. It is. It really is. Yeah, and it, and it happened in America, um, and it happened in recent times. Yep. Recent modern times. Not something that happened you know, a couple hundred years ago. Um, yeah, so. My goodness. Did you witness any physical abuses, any beatings for punishment? I did, yeah. Um, my earliest memory of this was actually quite horrifying to me. So um, I had been at um, like the the Sea Org, um, like Cadet Org. Like I had been at the, so I arrived at the CEO when I was six years old, and then we went to different, um, we had different locations. So the, our school moved to West Covina and then Culver City. Um, and then we also then eventually, I think they also had like some kids here and some kids there. So by the time I got to the ACA, um, I think that I was like, I'm going to guess like eight years old. Um, so, so not long after, like I hadn't been there for very long. Um, maybe I was nine by this stage. Um, and just a bit hazy on the exact years. But okay. one of my, um, I remember like one of my original uh, sort of initial experiences was I went out to the backyard and there was a boy, a really young boy, so probably about six years old, and he was being held down. He had a child on each arm and each leg, holding him down, swinging him back and forth, like the cement, uh, his head is like just inches from the mm-hmm. um, ground. And um, this teacher, her name was Rebecca, she had long black hair, she was telling the, ki- the other kids to grab cups of water and throw it on him and that they could do whatever they wanted to him as punishment. So she was basically saying, right, the group can all come in and punish this child. It was like six years old, who was being held down by his arms <coughs> and his legs by the children. Um, so the, a bunch of other kids ran in. They're like, oh, yeah, and they grabbed water cups and threw it at him. Um, they were kicking him while he was being held. And I walked into this, and I was just, like, completely overwhelmed. I ran inside, and I um, just cowered in the corner of the hallway by myself. Like, I had my knees up. I had my arms around my knees. And I just cried and cried and cried. And my friends came up to me, and they were like, you know, what's happened, Miriam? And I just, like, could hardly talk about it. I was just completely overwhelmed by what um, I had seen. And that was my first experience of it. And then through like growing up, I mean the adults at times were um, like pretty physical with us. Not all of them. I had some really lovely um, people there as well. Like there was um, a couple women who were our like dorm mothers, and they they were amazing people. Um, you know, in a lot of cases as well, they're just completely overwhelmed. So yeah, there was like a couple of adults that were sort of more like this vicious, more physical, more abusive, but then there was also some that were um, really quite lucky. Okay, so, yeah, mixed bag, okay. 
Did you yeah. did you see any Ninja Turtles or Transformers there? I know someone was saying in one of the uh, smear videos that they had toys. They had great toys and had lots of fun. Like, I personally really didn't have toys. Um, and I think that just depends on whether or not your parents... You know, some parents took a bit more of an interest with their children. Sent them toys. Yeah, and... Um, but also often we would share toys amongst ourselves, too. So, yeah, I mean, kids might have gotten... I do remember, like, at the ATA, we had marbles and we had pogs. But I often, like, my parents, you know, gave us money or, like, we just didn't really buy us toys often. Um, like, I would use, like, the communal shampoo. Um, I was very often given clothes, given hand-me-downs, that kind of thing. So, yeah, I just really didn't have an abundance of those kind of, like, personal items or toys. Yeah. What were birthdays like? I don't think anyone's ever asked that. I'm curious. What, what were birthdays like in that yeah. place? I actually only recall like two birthdays that I had. That were actually like treated like birthdays. Yeah, I had. Um, so, and in terms of being in the cadet org, in the time I was in the cadet org, so from six years old up to 13 years old, um, I only remember one birthday. Mm. And that was when I was like, seven or eight years old, and I was at the Anthony building, and there was a whole bunch of kids, um, we were all together, and there was, um, in this one area outside, and my mom had said, like, oh, it's your birthday, so my parents, my mom and my dad had visited me that day, my mom said, it's your birthday, I'm going to buy you a cake, um, what cake do you want? I was like, oh, I'd love carrot cake, so she bought me, like, this enormous cake, which was, like, a rectangle shape, basically, it was, like, enough to feed, like, I don't know, quite a few kids. And um, they sat me down at the table, like my parents left, I was left with this cake, sat me down at the table, and basically like, all these kids like lined up to have some cake. <laughs> well, it was probably like 50 kids. And then that was my birthday. Man. So every other yeah, birthday, was it just like another day, just an average day, just nothing, just same? Yeah, pretty much. Like wow. if you got cake, that was great. That was Wow. Great. Um, I think my dad, like I do remember my dad occasionally buying some presents, um, for birth for birthdays. Uh, and I might get a card. So for example, like my grandparents might send a card from Australia. Um mm. that was it. Yeah. It's terrible. Yeah. It's terrible. You you wanted to tell me go ahead, go ahead. Oh no, no, you go. You wanted to tell me uh about another thing that doesn't come up very often in these interviews with you. Um Yeah. Something about the C C H R and the um the raids they would do on psychiatric wards and how that affected your as your half brother. Yeah, so um, there's an entire story for like my half brother Steve, who is my mother's first son, um, and I mean that that's quite a lengthy story, and I think I might like write that whole story at some stage. Um, but he, um, you know, he was with my mom like as she got involved in Scientology more and more. So she was in um, a relationship with Steve's father. Um, that relationship ended when Steve was about four years old. And my mom, I think maybe she found Scientology just before or around that time, and she went into Scientology from there and became more and more dedicated to it. So he was really, as a child, he experienced that um, sort of you know, how that all sort of transpired. Mm -hmm. And um, more and more he was sort of just like put to the side, 
her side and then eventually like completely rejected by her. But um, you know, he used to tell me these stories uh, about um, it was very emotional for him, like even as an adult. So when I first came back to Australia, I really wanted to reconnect up with him and um, that was very important to me to have that relationship with him, get to know him more. And he would often tell me these very emotional emotionally painful stories about his experiences with my mom um, that, you know, spoke of neglect and, uh, and mostly neglect and abandonment and and that was still very painful to him as an adult. Um, and one of the things that he did talk about was that she used to go in these um, like under like undercover raids, I guess you could say, so she would pose as someone I think interested in um, a, a psychiatric ward and um, she would take Steve with her to these psychiatric wards, and she worked for the, the Guardian's office at the time. How old was Steve? There was a lot of, um, so I'm, I'm thinking like a young teenager. Okay. I'm coming to mind with the age 14. I'd have to clarify that, but um, because he was perhaps a bit younger, but I'm thinking 14. Okay. That doesn't sort of make sense, because if at 14, I would have been, uh, she would be pregnant with me, or I would just be born. So that doesn't seem right. I'm thinking he was a bit younger than that. Mm. Um, I'd have to clarify that, and I can find out more information about that. But um, he, yeah. So she, they went. He took. She took him into the psych ward with her, and um, was given a tour around it. And so she would be like taking notes for, um, you know, this is stuff information to come back to the guardian's office so that they could use it in attacking um, Scientology. So this is going back to like the early 70s. Um, also, yeah, no, like maybe eighties. Let's say around early eighties. Okay. Yeah, late seventies, early eighties. Okay. I have to work out a bit more on. That's alright. But I know he um he took her, she took him into the psychiatric ward. She lost him in there. He was a child. He got he was stuck in a psychiatric ward with like crazy people, with mentally insane people. I talked him for some time and she had to go back to find him. And this kind of thing, like this very sort of absent-mindedness when it comes to children, is like very prevalent through his childhood. Like she would, it sounds like, she would often just like forget about him. Oh, when you say she lost him, is she this... really lost her child. Did she leave the building, head back to the base um, and realize, wait a minute, I left something behind? Yeah, I don't know how far she got. Wow. Um, that's, that's what he told me. He said, she lost me in this psychiatric ward. He's like, I was locked in with crazy people. I was terrified. I was a child. Uh, oh, it doesn't matter if she was by the front door or on the road. He's locked in a room with some people who were very disturbed. Exactly. She's not in the room at all. Like, she is some, in some other area. Um, yeah. And why would you take someone so, that young? Ugh. Yeah, why would you take the child in there? And that was just sort of the degree that she was dedicated to these things. She just got really, really into it. Um, and there's a great book, Fair Game, by Steve Kinane um, from Australia. It's an excellent book because it talks about that time period and gives a real insight into like the Australian history with regard to that. So, um, yeah, I will, like... I do want to tell Steve's story more, uh, but mm -hmm. I feel like I need to find out some more information about it, too. Um, sure. So I just have my memories of him telling me um, bits and pieces. 
Yeah. But he actually, he passed away um, 2009, and that was what led me, it was what made me realize, because by 2010, 2011, I realized, like, I was in such a bad mental state with regard to all the childhood abuse, everything I'd experienced in Scientology, issues with my mother, obviously sexual abuse by my father, and also um, the grief and the loss of um, of losing Steve. And I had, um, I, I, I carried on, I took all the emotional, um, like, you know, his upset and his trauma and his childhood experiences, I really carried them with me because I felt like I need, you know, my mother needs to be held responsible for them. But I carried that pain with me, and it just got too much with my own pain as well in, in there. Um, I just got to a really dark place, and that's when I reached out to get counseling because I was like, oh, wow, I am just, I can't move forward in my life because this is too much for me. Um, yeah, so. Um, what happened to Steve, if you don't mind my asking? Part in part. Yeah, he um, died very suddenly um, and unexpectedly. He was bitten by a snake. Oh, my goodness. I'm so sorry. Yeah. Okay. And you're glad you went to counseling and therapy? I mean, there's nothing to be scared of, right? I am. There's nothing to be scared of, um, but I would say it's, it's not an easy process. Like, you're going to be talking about things that perhaps you haven't really told anyone or you haven't told many people, you haven't gotten into it in any depth, and there's a lot of layers there. But the reward is just incomparable. Like, the reward is worth it because, um, you know, you get a piece of yourself back. Not the most important thing. And unlike in Scientology and confessionals, the stuff that you say with a psychiatrist will never be used against you in a smear video later on. Yeah, I mean, that was a relief. I remember sitting down. Okay, so first of all, I had a complete aversion to going and getting counseling. Um, so it wasn't until I had gotten to the point where I knew that I wanted nothing to do with Scientology ever again. I had gone to the point of the realization of what had happened. And it was only then that I could go, okay, now I'm willing to go and get counseling for it. Because in Scientology, you just don't. You just don't uh, go to any sort of exterior sort of sources or assistance. You only... Um, so first I had to go through that process and then, you know, I remember my first session, it was such a relief, like, I just remember this joy because I didn't feel fear. When you go into a Scientology auditing session, um, there's, a, there's a lot of fear there, like, because it feels like, a, I don't know, it just, it was a different situation and here I finally found that, like, wow, this person can help me and um, that right. was amazing. You immediately start to notice the questions, right? They're different kind of questions. They're not at you. They're they're absolutely. to you. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. And I also, I mean, the main thing for me was, like, I'm not going to be punished for anything that I say here. This yep. is a truly safe zone, um, and it's going to be okay. And I have this person sitting across from me who is, who is, like, in support of me. Like, this person's there to support me through this process, which you don't get that with the auditor. It really feels kind of like this subtle kind of dangerous environment because um, depending on what you say, <laughs> that determines like what's going to happen to you. And here, if not here, there was no repercussions for what I was saying. She only wanted to help me. She only wanted to support me. 
and um, that was a really amazing feeling. Good, good. I'm glad you're. I'm glad you're having a good experience with it. Yeah, yeah. So I've I've started um, yeah getting counseling again recently as well, and um, again it's amazing. And one thing that um, my counselor has told me so I've only gone a couple sessions now with this person. Um, she brought up something called victims of crime. So another option. So this is why it's great to get counseling because they're aware of so many different things that you might not even know about in different ways that you can achieve justice or to get recognition or acknowledgement um, or just like whatever it is that's going to help you. They know of so many different avenues that can provide that for you. So one thing she mentioned, she was like, okay, well, you know, you're having a lot of trouble pursuing this, like with the U.S. authorities. So, you know, there's something that we can do here in Australia called victims of crime. And basically, the judge, a judge, will uh, grant you an acknowledgement, an official acknowledgement, and say this happened to you. And she said, well, how would you feel about that? And I was like, well, that would be amazing. And yeah. um, you know, sometimes that's all that everything <coughs> means. It's just like, hey, you were wrong. Somebody did this to you. It was not okay. And um, yeah. That's great. Great. Is there anything we didn't cover that you wanted to cover? Okay, I do think you wanted to talk about there was a policy. I know you don't have it in front of you right now, but a policy of uh, that that dictated the punishment uh, for the people at the ranch, like for the for the children. What what kind of punishments did you guys have? Um, okay, so there was various things that we did. Um, they actually set up um, in terms of punishment. They set up. Um, a group, like when I was there, there was the Ethics and Correction Group, um, which was a form of like children's RPS, um, we were digging trenches and that kind of thing. But as like on a routine basis, um, you know, all the kids did all the maintenance for the whole ranch, um, and like from building things to um, like clearing, uh, you know, doing fire breaks, so clearing all the, the weeds and the overgrowth and stuff away, and, like, um, Pickaxes and uh, pickaxes. Tools. Yeah, <laughs> I have a photo of like a kid who's like I don't know. Smaller than the pickaxe. They're pretty young. <laughs> uh, like the pickaxe is like oh. over half these guys. Um, yeah, I actually have like a bit of collection of photos uh, that I've been able to get, but uh, that yeah shows kids doing things like. Um, um, yeah, building, uh, building fences, digging trenches, um, yeah, so that was one of the things that I did, so I was on the ethics and correction group when I was 12 years old, and, um, I was, yeah, so I was, like, yeah, digging trenches. Um, What's the biggest thing you built? What we did. <laughs> what did I build? Oh, God, I don't think I built anything personally, but I did a lot of, like, um, like, demolition kind of stuff, so, like, De demo what? <laughs> it's like, when I was 12, they sent uh, me and a small group of kids down to L.A., and our job was to, um, demolish, <laughs> the renovating uh, one of the buildings, that so we were demolishing walls. <laughs> kids! Actually, I mean, I, like, I laugh at it now, but, yeah, I mean, it was so normal to me at the time, it was just like, okay, that's what you do, because this is the kind of thing that we did pretty often. It was actually called a mission as well, so it was like a special mission, so you feel like you're doing something you know, a bit different, but at that point in time, I was completely pulled out of school. I wasn't doing any um, regular education. I was basically, 
uh, demolishing walls, and then I would go on course and do a Scientology course, um, which that course at the time was called Personal Efficiency. Um, so it was like the course I was doing, and then um, and then yeah, and basically renovating and stuff. And I got stuck down in LA. Like they wouldn't let me back at the ranch school. I don't don't know why. They were like, you're needed down here to do these different missions. And I really wanted to go back to school. I'm like, I just want to go be a regular kid, which in my mind was, you know, my idea of what a regular kid was is nothing near what other people think. Right. I just wanted to go back up to the ranch and, like, be around my friends and do what they were doing. And, um, but no, like, they had me doing renovations um, in L.A. with a packed face. And, um... But they had kids building, like I heard about stages, actually, like hot tubs, not in that specific location, but in these things, these environments, you kids are building things, and I have trouble building a sandwich sometimes, and I'm a grown man, so what, how how did you, how did you know the demolition process, or the building, you did both, and I told you Scientology was destructive, by the way, but how did you know how to do this stuff? Well, often what would happen is you'd have um, one adult who would to give you the initial instructions and show you how to do it. And then pretty much, like, because we were considered adults in little bodies, right. so we could do, you know, like, there wasn't a requirement to be supervised all the time, or um, certainly, like, so, for example, that mission, that particular one where um, I was in that building, it was the AOLA building in L.A., and it was on, the, I can remember, like, the second or third floor. Um, and I do kind of vaguely remember an adult adult being there. At the vaguely. Yeah, just sort of showing us and gave us some equipment because we had wheelbarrows, which we used to like cart the um, pieces of plasterboard and that over to the chute that went to the rubbish tip. Um, and, um, you know, like one of those massive, I don't know what you call them over there, but... Um, uh, like Dumpster. Uh, anyways, and then we have like mass dumpster, but it was quite a, a large one. Bigger one. I, I'm not sure what to call it either. Yeah. Like an industrial kind of stuff. Okay. Yeah. Um, and like we had like little white mass dust particles. Well, at least it gave you that. And yeah, we might have had gloves, and that was about it. Um, and so they basically like kind of set us up, showed us what to do, and then from there on, like they just expected us, you know being adults and little bodies that we can carry Figure out, it out. those duties without, um, yeah. And, like, often that was the case. Um, and we became, like, pretty self-sufficient in that way, too. Um, you know, sort of shown how to do something once we could, you know, carry that forward and have that level of responsibility and, you know, that we could do. And things like, um, I mentioned in the Aftermath show where we helped to, um, put together Elron Hubbard Way. Okay. So we Yeah, so it was like <laughs> so much kids and it wasn't it wasn't just us kids that built it. I mean there were other people around that were doing it. It's a huge road. But um yeah, at one stage they got us all in. It was a hot day, I remember and we're like there's like you put the black car down and then we placed the bricks in the sort and order to put kind of like this frosty pattern. Um some of the kids were putting in trees that line the street too. Okay. Um, yeah, things like that. We had a lot of missions, um, th which were like things like filing missions or sorting um, promotional materials or printing in alphabetical order. Uh, we had 
um, like access to people's like ethics files and that kind of thing. So sometimes I would just like stop and read stuff and be like, oh, like oh, that's interesting. And it would be someone's like personal overt and withhold um, or reports on other people, husbands reporting on wives, wives reporting on husbands. And this is when I was a kid. Right. Yeah, that was, that, that was a mission. Okay, so I laughed a lot during that, and that's just because of how absurd it sounds, but it's really not that funny. Because yeah. you're doing demolition, you're doing hard labor. There had to be injuries. There had to be people getting hurt. Uh, what, what was that? Was, was, what, did you guys get lucky? Did you guys make it through that, or was there a lot of injuries? Um, I don't necessarily recall other, um, injuries, like, I don't remember, I didn't get, um, hurt in the job. Wow. Um, I don't remember other people doing it, but it's kind of one of those things that you don't really pay attention because it's kind of, it, the idea is, like, to not be a victim. So, uh. you pretty much just pick yourself up and carry on. You know, you might just get some advantage or whatever, like, you, you quickly get your physical body sorted out and then you carry on because you're a spiritual being. Right. Like the idea, um, so for example, at the end of, uh, so when I was in LA and I was doing this renovation project when I was 12 and I wanted to go back to the ranch and they said that I couldn't go, um, I ended up accidentally stepping on a shard of glass mm. and ended up having to go to the hospital. So that wasn't a work injury, that was just in my dormitory that I was staying in. I'd actually broken a mirror. And they let you go to the hospital? They had to, yeah. They yeah. had to take me. So where I was, I sort of stepped out into the hallway and started crying to help. There was no one around me. I just stood there with a puddle of blood that was getting bigger and bigger. Oh. Um, and people came, ended up hearing me. I was out there for a while. And then they um, came and grabbed me. They took me down to security. Security office. Van just but they decided there, like, okay, we'll take it to the hospital. And actually, my dad came with me, because he was told. Um, he worked at the base at that time. Um, and then took me to the, he took me to the hospital. I think maybe one other person came with us, drove us there. And, um, yeah, I got stitches. Okay, they had to find, there was a shard of glass still in there, so they had to pull that out, and then I got stitches and everything. But... Uh, so then after that, they're like, okay, well, you can, you're not capable of working, so we're going to send you up to the ranch. Mm. Which is kind of funny. Basically, like, they were ha they wanted me to stay there as long as I could physically do labor for them. But as soon as I was injured and couldn't do labor for them, I was then sent back to the ranch, which is all I wanted to do in the first place. So I was arrived back at the ranch, and I was like, yeah, so happy. But, like, within a couple of days, or very shortly after that, that's when the field members came up to the ranch, and they... Um, announced that there was going to be this ethics and correction group, and then I, of course, was put into it. And you had to run everywhere, just like in the RPS. So I ended up having to, like, ditch my crutches and just kind of, like, hobble around. Um, because so because of that? Of just, like, this disregard. Yeah, because I was in this punishment group, so... <sighs> run, run, I was like, I can't run, I've like, I've got crutches, and then basically, like, I was so under so much pressure wow. to run, that I eventually just got rid of the crutches, because I'm like, I can't run with these, and so I kind of, like, would do, like, this hobble run, um, 
It was, like, insane. It's so bizarre. They don't care, but that's, that's a complete disregard. Like, a physical injury, it, 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 do, it doesn't really mean much. Um, if you had a broken leg, okay, that's a bit different. But it didn't matter that I had stitches in my foot and this was capable of, like, running. And needed crutches. It was just like, no, that's what you expect me to do. And then, um, yeah, I also ended up, like, getting a friend. Um, so I knew I was supposed to go back to the doctors. I think it was, like, a couple of weeks later to get my stitches out. And I ended up just getting a friend to help me cut them out because I knew they wouldn't let me go. Like, they're not going to just let me go to the doctors that done. So, um, yeah, I just asked for some shit. So she just said, like, I'm going to Really? Yeah. <sighs> yeah. I already sound surprised. <sighs> yeah. Yeah, it's, um, I don't know. Like, so for us, it was just normal. It was just the way that things were then. In hindsight, like, having been out for a number of years, I was like, oh, missing a whole lot. I know that uh, what happened is uh, people went over. We, we were coming back to re-record the ending of the interview because of uh, there was a technical difficulty and it, it's an interesting thing because since we recorded initially, um, Scientology in the Aftermath aired its 11th episode of the second season. Yeah. And he told the story of how uh, Chantel, who was just recently on the show, her mom saw the show with you and Sino on it, which I'll also say... Um, I was considering taking a different path with the podcast, and you guys convinced me to keep going uh, with this. Oh, wow, yeah. And um, you also convinced this woman and her husband to come home to their daughter and their and their family. Yeah. So if y'all don't know if you want to comment on that at all, or if you have any thoughts on that. Yeah, I mean, it's pretty incredible, and I'm really happy for them. Um, and... So what happened was, because um, I've spoken to Romina, she contacted me directly. She contacted me when this all happened as well, and uh, we've also spoken on the phone as well. Um, but she had actually worked with my mom. Now I should say I haven't seen this last episode. I haven't actually watched it, so. Um, but I kind of generally know what we've covered. Um, yeah, so she. She knew my mom for many, many years. She was very close to her. She considered... Uh, see, my mom never talked about her friends, really. She didn't talk about her personal life. But uh, Romina says that they were, like, best friends. Um, and, yeah, that they were very close and worked with each other for a number of years. Um, so, for her, like, to see, you know, my story, it's very confronting for her. Um, because it's not something that you can ignore. It's not just a stranger talking about something that you don't have anything to do with. It's like she recognized, oh my God, that's Carrie's daughter. She's talking about Carrie. Yeah. That would have been just. Um, she said she she you know bolted um, upright and just like oh my God. Um, and I can totally understand that. Like when it's more personal to you, you can relate to it, and you have to kind of examine things from that too which is obviously what happened. Um, 
And like for Sina and I, like I think that this is more than what we had imagined could happen. Like we did it for ourselves to give ourselves that voice, um, and that was really important for us. And we also um, were hoping that you know if there was a message that we could send out, it would be to second generation um, that you know that they can speak out as well. Um, and you know that it is scary, but they you know it's important to stand up to this voice of Scientology. Um, but we never thought that, that we would be reconciling, you know, family members and mothers and daughters and stuff. That's just incredible for us. So we're really happy about that. Uh, that, is, that is amazing. Uh, you, d- you didn't think you'd reach that far, and, and you did. And, and honestly, like you know, they said it. Um, you haven't seen it yet, but they said it on the show. Mike Rinder said it's the first person that they know of who's seen the show and just flat out yeah. walked out. And it it is yeah. it is so great. And, and you know, not I, I imagine it's bittersweet for anyone else because everybody wants their families reunited. Everybody wants their disconnections reconnected. They want their justice for what happened to them. But it is so great to have an example to be able to see some good news. Cause see, there's progress. Something's happening, and and I hope you, you should. I hope you feel great about the part you play in that, because that is yeah, amazing. Um, it's it's it is amazing and. I am really grateful to Romina to come forward and to, you know, say this with me and publicly um, and come forward with her story because, yeah, and I also think that, you know, hopefully this is just the beginning of it and there's so much more to come. Right. Um, yeah, so it is amazing. And also, like, you never know the ripple effect that you're having. It's so vast that I can't even really imagine it. But if I think about, like, when I first saw um, Tommy Davis an interview where he denies this connection. For me, that was so alarming because I never really watched stuff about Scientology, and it happened even after I left Scientology, it was just something that was so ingrained in me not to do. But you know, one day a friend was like, "Oh, this program's on, like, you know, I'm really watch it." I was like, "Oh, kind of begrudgingly cut that one to watch it. It's fine." And um, and he denies this connection, and it that really, really shocked me. I was like, oh my god, they're lying about this? Because it would be different if they're like, yes, we have this disconnection policy and this is what we do, and just be open about what they do, but the fact that they were right. lying about it was so shocking for me, and then that sent me on, like, okay, well, what else are they lying about? And that really uncovered, that was the beginning of a lot of stuff for me. And I also have seen many mentions of that exact same scenario for many other people when I've come across it online. Mm-hmm. They've also cited that same exact interview. So it's amazing um, the effect that sort of one thing um, on that kind of public level, how it can affect many people. And so there's probably a lot that we don't know about yet um, and how it's made a difference. I've had a lot of um, abuse survivors contact me, of many sexual abuse um, survivors come forward and they've told me their stories. Um, that's been a pretty emotional experience for me as well. Um, and it's hard because it gives you an idea of the magnitude of the problem. Yeah. Um, and that's a lot to, you know, there's so much more work that has to be done. And it's scary. And I wish that I could do all of it. Like, or I wish that 
I could have a bigger effect than what I, I have had because there's just so much left. Yeah, there's so much more to do. There's so much more work. You know, it's so it's so interesting because uh, you just made that point about being aware of how much, just how much of, of the sexual abuse there is. Um, and it's ironic to me um, that I never, I don't know if I never consciously really made the connection in the beginning, you know, with all abusive cult, mentally abusive, uh, hurting families, driving people to suicide. But what I what I didn't think, you know, I heard there was a couple, you know, assaults here and there, and that's there's nothing small about a single one, right? But yeah. you know, you hear about it everywhere as a couple assaults here and there. Um, it wasn't until you know halfway through the year doing this that I realized I started talking to people who've been through it. That yeah. oh my God, if if I didn't know it was a bad thing, and you think Amy Scooby was the first episode, and that's what got me to do this, inspired me to do this show. Mm. You know, and it was about her, you know, uh, the thing that, that drove me crazy was that she said she is a victim of statutory rape. And then the people oh. on Twitter were like, she's lying. She's a liar. And I'm like, really? I'm like, oh, you know who you know who I'm talking about uh, on, on Twitter. Yeah. And um, I actually wasn't active on Twitter at that time. But, I but mean, you know him now. <laughs> you definitely know him now. Okay, I do. Okay. John Alex Wood. John Alex Wood. Oh, okay. That jerk. He's, yeah. He's, he's something. Um, yeah. Yeah, he's a piece of work. And it became uh, uh, clear to me that if I didn't know then, I thought it was a couple here and there and then, and I know all I know now because I too, like you, uh, not for the same reasons obviously, but I have heard other stories that aren't public, and um, mm. and that I know what I know now, mm. I still think I don't know everything, and not knowing everything about it drives me crazy because how bad is it really? We don't know how bad it really is, even now. Absolutely, absolutely, uh, and that's something that I do have a bit of an indication of, and that is scary. It's scary. Um, and I'd say there's there's two things here. I I wouldn't say that um, sexual abuse is like prevalent in Scientology, more so compared to other um, organizations, or um, for example, schools or churches or whatever in general, right? Um, I mean, as a whole, we still have quite a ways to go in protecting children. I think there's... But there's in the world, right. About that. Yeah, w- worldwide. So not, um, you know, in the isolation of Scientology, but... No, you're right. In general, we've still got a lot of work to do, um, and that that is coming a long way. We see a lot more education about it in schools. We're educating, educating children. Um, we're... The, the institutions are kind of being more active and providing that information. So there's a lot of great change that's happening. But in Scientology, what is unique to Scientology and what is systematic to Scientology are the policies that keep this veil of silence right. in place. So you can't get this information in and out of it, which we are seeing, for example, the Catholic Church. You know, there's been a, many changes yep. in the information you know, it, it's probably not everything's been uncovered, but they have certainly opened their doors up to say, okay, we're we're going to be reporting on this, or we're going to be willing to um, get this information out, or take this information in, and to, to know that they are not um, the authorities on it. Do you know what I mean? Like they are not. Right. Um, 
that there is a bigger system that's in place to handle these kinds of things. That everyone has to work together. It, it's an insane um, thing. But Scientology yeah. doesn't have that. Yeah, but Scientology doesn't have that. Scientology is uh, it keeps to its policies. Um, it's not likely to introduce an outside program that's going to provide information about right. these sorts of things, which is what I would love to see. You know, I would love to see expert groups um, on the subject of child sexual abuse being able to come in and provide some education, provide some tools. Uh, but the way that Scientology is, it's not going to allow that, or it hasn't allowed that. Hopefully that will change. But you have things like in their policies where it creates this environment of victim shaming, victim blaming, yep. victim punishing, uh, where the predator is the one that gets to walk free, where the predator is the one that gets protection, and it's such a backward system. That is the issue. That is the where the sort of atrocities are occurring because every time the victim comes up against it, it's reimpacting the trauma on them. It's reinforcing the trauma, and it's abusing them all over again. Uh, and they have no one to go to. It's all kept internally. Um, they don't have resources to get help there. They're told not to go to the police. Um, that's a real problem. That's what I'd like to see change, and that's what we'll see a lot more um, coming out of. And also with victims telling their stories, I think we're still another 10 years, 5, 10 years away from really getting the scope of victims coming forward. They're still too scared. It's going to take a while longer um, before they're brave enough because it's a scary. Scientology is a is a scary thing. It's very scary on how they're going to punish you. The threat is always there. Uh, yeah, and that takes a while to kind of overcome. Sure, sure. Yeah. All right. Well, that's that's wow. You've been amazing. <laughs> um, as Thank I've told you. you before, again, amazing. And um, I'm so grateful to you because you are uh, as we've talked about before you um, you talk about stuff that people wouldn't want to talk about and I know you don't want to yeah. talk about probably and you know it's yeah, important I was and to say as well um, that's something that's come up for me recently um, you know I think with Chantal and Romina reconciling and I think that that's um, really an amazing thing it does kind of remind me um, you know, I wish that I could have that with my mother, and I don't actually wish for the reconciliation of a relationship, but because um, there's just so much repair that needs to be done that that's not even realistic as a mm. initial thought. But if she ever came out of Scientology, she could provide a statement um, for my police case, and you know, she she's kind of holding on to this crucial evidence. Like my father came to her when I was twelve and confess to her in person about what he did. Um, and she could provide that in a statement and say, look, he came and told me this, blah, blah, blah. Um, and that's a huge part of my case. Um, if she was ever to come out of Scientology, that is the, the only thing that I would ask for her, from her. Um, and, yeah, and I hope, and that's what, I guess that really saddens me because I can't just like push that aside and go, okay, well that relationship's done and dusted, you know, um, my dealings with the church is done and dusted and I can just push that aside and move on now. I can't because I have got a current police case that um, 
they're not allowing me to resolve, like, or they're not allowing me to, um, like, they're holding evidence back. Right. So, they're affecting my life today. It's not like they haven't, you know, they haven't stopped affecting my life. It's still to this day. It doesn't stop. My life. And this, exactly, and it hasn't stopped. So, I wish, I, I would love to just, like, you know, turn and walk away completely and just like, oh, good. I'm, I'm free of that. I'm free of that. But they still have this control. They still have this effect on me. And um, it's very frustrating. Sometimes it makes me feel really helpless. Um, and makes me feel sad. Um, yeah, it's definitely a hard thing to deal with. And I hope that, I don't know. Yeah, if, if anything, if she could just help me with my safe space, that's definitely all I would ask. If she did that, would you try to make sure she was able to uh, to get set up somewhere, get herself together? Would you help her with that, or is it just um, thank you and bye, or how, how does that work for you? Yeah, I don't know. That's a hard one. Um, it's a hard one. It's uh, just that repair that you talked about. Yeah, I mean, for me, it's so raw. Um, what she did to me is so painful. Uh, it's like it's like I feel like I'm not the one to deal with that. Like while I would love to see her, you know, come out and have some support, and she will, I'm sure. She'll. There's, there's people that she's known that yeah. like Romina, for example. Um, you know, she, I'm sure she would find that way herself, and she would get enough support to get on her feet. I just feel like it's not going to be me now, um, because emotionally, yeah, it's like. Yeah, it's it's hard. It's uh, a lot of damage has been done, and it's, I don't. I'm not recovered from that. So, yeah. Well, I hope if she ever does come out and see things for what they really are and realize what she's done, I hope that both you can and she can forgive her. I hope she can forgive herself when she realizes what yeah. she has done, because I don't imagine how you can. You're basically advocating. You're basically saying it's okay, and it's not. Mm. Mm. The thing is about forgiveness is I think that um, with forgiveness, there needs to be, um, you know, there's there's always a, a pressure on the person who's been wronged to forgive. And I, mean, I know it seems like what you're trying to do, but I have heard this thing before, like, oh, you know, forgive, and then, you can, you know, then it's going to be all better. But... I think forgiveness requires that something is done on the other person's side. Remorse. For example, yeah. yeah, like I've been asked, you know, oh, would you ever forgive your father? Like, well, you know, at one time when I was 17, I was forced to sign paperwork that said I forgave him, and these are words that I did not write myself, and now I had to sign it, and I was forced into that position. So for me, forgiveness is like, it leaves this real bitter taste in my mouth. Right. Well, why should he be forgiven? Or why should my mother be forgiven? She's protected a pedophile for many years to the detriment of myself. Like, I'm the one that has had to carry this burden through my life. It's um, not right. I'm the one that has had to... Um, you know, it still troubles me to this day. It's like, oh, I've got my own young children. I can't understand like how my parents put me through what they did. Um... And it's heartbreaking, and yeah, it's, I, I've got a lot to recover from still, and I'm not in a place of um, 
being able to just dish out for the kids. Yeah, I don't blame you. She would need to, yeah, like she would need, she needs to do the right thing, and he needs to do the right thing. He can go and walk into a police station and go and say, this is what I did, and confess. Um, And she can support that case and and provide her evidence. Um, And then beyond that, it's like, that's great, because then that can resolve the sort of justice uh, element for me. And then then I don't know how I'm going to feel. Well, well, Miriam, you know, um, I barely knew you, and as a father myself, I will never forgive your dad. <laughs> so, yeah. that, that's not going to happen. Yeah. 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 I think that um, for a victim, it's their own healing journey. I know that for some victims, they, you know, they've said that, oh, I, I found peace, I, you know, saved my abusers. For me, that's just not realistic to me. Um, and I think that, yeah, each to their own. Um, about what would work for them, but I'm not giving people a free pass, and I'm not going to just roll over and go, okay, well that's that's all fine. Um, it's just that's just not not cool. All right. Wow. Well, uh, you 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 have uh, you should feel no burden. In my mind, you should feel no yeah. burden. You've done you you've done the best you could with what you've been given, and you've done very good with yeah. it, very well with it. So. I'm proud of you. I'm impressed with you, and uh, <clears throat> feel so lucky to have you on here. Thank you. Um, Thank you, Oh, you're welcome. What we do here at the end of every show, of course, and this is our second run, and I had to rewrite them so some of these will be different. But <laughs> we do ten questions. <laughs> uh, are you ready to do ten questions? Yes. All right. Ten questions with Miriam Francis. Number one: True or false? The ranch could have been a good place with better leadership and none of these stupid policies. Um, true, it could have been better if, uh, I think education was also like a major thing, so if there was actually certified teachers, um... Oh, that by itself is like, oof, there's chills. A lot, yeah, <laughs> there's a lot of it, it's so false, like not just by those changes, I mean, there's the lack of parental contact, um, lack of parental advocacy, like the, the fact that you're just going to know that you don't have, you don't really have anyone to yeah. Uh, or to support you, or that kind of thing. Uh, yeah, so definitely there's other major, major changes that would have needed to happen to make it um, an acceptable place. Yeah. All right. Number two, your best moment coming out of Scientology was when you realized, finish that sentence. Oh, okay. Um, I realized that I wasn't a bad person. Oh, wow. As far as I know, you're not. As far as I know, you're not. Number three, you're very good friends. We talked about Sina Kamula a little bit here. Um, describe Sina in uh, three words. Sina is compassionate, um, she's bright, um, and caring. Okay. She is like, yeah, she's very. Um, energetic, like her personality is like a, a bright spark, and she's very loving towards her friends, um, <laughs> yeah, she's, she has a lot of empathy, a lot of understanding for really deep issues, uh, which is, like, you're not going to find that with everybody, um, some people just don't want to kind of engage in any conversation that is going to be even the slightest emotional, and 
Lucina, she has a lot of compassion. We talk about a lot of pretty, like, deep, dark stuff, you know, and it's great to have someone that you can confide in and trust and um, that you know is going to have your back, like we have each other's back no matter what. I agree with everything you just said. That's what I found uh, to understand about her is those things. She is a spark. She is uh, uh, very, uh, very bright. Um, and uh, you, you you did this last time, too. It's way more than three words. So we'll just summarize to not possible or just not possible. <laughs> Describe yeah. a few words. That's that's a good thing on sign of there. Okay. Uh, yeah. Number four, you're in Australia. Uh, Ruses as pets, good or bad? Oh, that's probably not a good idea. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I bet you make a mess. Uh, number five. Are they cute? Okay. Number five. Same with Australia here. Uh, scariest thing uh, in, in, that you've seen in that country, and uh, of course, uh, everything is an acceptable answer. <laughs> oh, God. Um, scariest thing. I like. I'm gonna say shark. Oh no, crocodiles. Crocodiles. Are they all over the place? I've seen a shark personally, but I have seen crocodiles. Um, they're in certain areas, and generally I stay very clear of those areas. I'm like terrified of crocodiles. They roam like um, free, just like everywhere. Just they don't even stay in the ponds and lakes and stuff. Uh no. Well, they they um mostly like river systems and um, what do you call it, like estuaries. Okay. That kind of thing. Um, yeah, like so they're not down where I am in Melbourne, <laughs> <laughs> but I've spent a fair bit of time up in Darwin, and uh, they are there, like in the middle system, and you're not allowed to go swim in the beach. Well, um, also, far north Queensland as well. I spent a bit of time there. Again, you're not allowed to just like lay on the beach or go in the beach water. <laughs> okay, <laughs> because of the danger. By a crocodile. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, like swimming in the surf, like a saltwater crocodile would be swimming in the surf. But you love your home, don't you? Yeah. It's all casual. Alright. Alright, number six, true or false. You now, with your experiences in Scientology, can construct a skyscraper. Oh god, false. <laughs> okay. Which kind of, which kind of, you killed that question with the fact you haven't done anything more than destroy things. Uh, for the most part. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Take so ditches, destroy things. I've learned a lot though, like about renovating. So, like, I know how to um, put up like an internal wall within a building. Nice. And I can like do like plastering and painting and sanding, and I know how to do that. I also know how to like furnish um, like wooden furniture. Okay. So I know how to like lacquer and stain and I've done plenty of that. Wonderful. Um, stain and stairwells. <laughs> wow. And fair bit of them. Lots of painting. Normal. Normal kid chores. All right. Uh. <laughs> yeah, when you're like 12, 13 years old. <laughs> Number seven. Do you prefer dessert or a light snack? Oh. I like snacks. Okay. All right. Alright, number eight. I yeah, bet you, you missed. Can't go past chocolate ice cream, though. That's a tough one. <laughs> That's one <of> my <laughs> number eight. You probably missed a lot of the older movies, and you probably started catching up on some of them since you've been out. Is there any uh, favorites that you caught up on after that? 
Oh, um, interesting. We did get access to movies. We weren't allowed to watch TV. Um, but we had, like, so on, an, as an award, you got to watch a movie. So, obviously we didn't have access, like, it was just, like, what movies they gave us. But movies, so that's this is why I'm bringing up, because movies actually were a huge thing. Okay. When I was in the field. And growing up in the cadet arc. So, like, when I was in the cadet arc, for example, um, only those kids who were up that, which means that they, their production was up on the previous week. Off so that piece. More trenches. <laughs> yeah, so, like, they, they dug more trenches this week than they did last week, for example. Um, I mean, obviously, there was that, you know, but, like, whatever your chore was, so if you washed more dishes or, I don't know, whatever, provided, I don't know. So whatever your job was, um, that was up on your statistics on the previous week, that's number one, what you had to do. And then number two, you had to receive a white glove inspection pass, um, <sighs> not only your dormitory, but also a common area, so a course room, for example. Yeah. Once those three things were accomplished, then you got to watch one movie as a group. Wow. That was your reward, yeah. Um, so, like, often, <laughs> I wasn't always, you know, up that. So, like, I, I mean, that would really bum you out when you're a kid. Cause like, you know, all these other kids are sitting there watching a movie. And it would be like, I don't know, like, kids crammed into one room with this little TV. Um, just like we're all, like, stacked up on each other. It was always, like, everyone breathing on each other. Like, the windows would be all fogged up and stuff. <laughs> that was, like, our one reward. <laughs> it was very sad. Um, so yeah, like movies did have that importance, and like for example, Christmas time um, in the Sior, we would watch a movie back to back. So you'd have like one day off, and we'd just watch movies back to back. How nice! I mean, yeah, for that situation, um, I guess it was very nice. But wow. Yeah, but like the interesting thing is, like for example, when my brother, so I've gone back to to LA to meet up with my brother who's still in the Sior, and. He basically, all he wanted to do was watch movies or watch TV. Like, because to a degree, it's like you can't really do anything else. You don't really have any money. Right. You're not used to going and, like, socializing outside of the base. Um, if, you t- if you have a day off, like, you could go to the beach or you could go to the shop um, or you could go to the movie theater, that kind of thing. But I don't know. It just, like, it creates this real fascination with movies. Mm-hmm. Um, in Hollywood, and I guess it's like a life that you're never gonna live because you're kind of like imprisoned in a way. I don't know. So maybe it's a fantasy, the fantasy kind of outlet. Um, right. Sort of thought, like, yeah. Uh, yeah. Like my mom is obsessed with watching movies. <laughs> I don't know. It's a weird thing. Like it'd be interesting if you ask uh, other like people who have been in the cadet or going to see it. It becomes a thing. What they think about it? Yeah, because it's it's a bit of a thing. Um, but sorry, your question. So, so in terms of catching up, like I didn't really have to sort of catch up on these after. Okay, but that answer was interesting, so yeah, we'll go with that. We were able to watch a lot of movies. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> well, that's yeah. okay. Uh, number nine. What kind of things? Oh, oh go ahead. I'm sorry. Sorry. Oh, yeah, I just like I'm interested in the fact. Okay. Yeah. Go on. <laughs> All right. Number nine. What kind of things are you working on these days? Um, well, I am going to, I think about writing a book, I have started to write it, uh, about my experience growing up. I did start writing it a little while ago, but I found it was, like, very emotional for me. Um, 
it, yeah, it was just sort of a lot kind of deal with, but then I stopped. Um, but it's more and more something that I think I want to do. So I just kind of need to like focus on that and make some time for it. Um, hmm. Other than that, like That's you cool. know, I have little projects. I I do painting. Um, I'm starting some work next week. Painting. Uh, I've been doing writing for. Yeah, like I do. I'm just looking at a bar painting. I'm in my lounge room and a bar painting across from me. It's of, like three jellyfish. So just like. You know, Interesting. Yeah. Very kind interesting. Like <laughs> cool. I want to see um, some of your paintings. You go start posting photos of those on social media. Maybe I will. Maybe I will. Okay. Um, yeah, so I've done a few. Um, so I'd like to do some more of that. Um, yeah. yeah. I've learned to appreciate um, painting. Yeah, <laughs> I've learned to appreciate art. Yeah. I'm sorry, yeah, it was bad timing with that comment. Go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, so I don't know, just bits and pieces. Um, yeah, I've got a bit of a work a bit of work ahead of me and I was doing um some writing for a website. Um I've also got my own website to kind of work on, which like yeah, I've wanted to do a lot of stuff for that. And um yeah, I don't know, just little bits and pieces of projects. But mainly I do have my two little kids to look after and they're in daycare. Okay. Um, All right. Very good. Yeah, I just get like doing all the day four days a week at the moment just to um, you know, just do a bit of few different things here and there. All right. Yeah. Yeah. All right. And hopefully, um, a bit of traveling ahead in about a year. Uh, any to the states? Um, I want to do a travel around Australia. Oh, okay. Well, okay. That, that makes sense too. <laughs> That's yeah. good. Yeah. All right. Very good. I very good. I traveled quite a bit along, around Australia, but I don't know. It's just I feel like I like to just kind of pick up and go. Well, you do what you can do and have fun doing it. Absolutely. You you enjoy everything that you can enjoy. Absolutely. I do. I do. Um, I also have like a little veggie patch, and I'm about to get a couple of chickens. So a little farming going on. Yeah, the backyard farming. Okay. Um, I um so I'm just sort of in the next couple of weeks. I've got some people who will help me build a chicken area in the backyard. Okay. Uh, I don't know. These are things that I like. I'm interested in that I like doing. Oh, right. hey, it's 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 what works for you, right? That's it. And no one can tell you any different. That's it's a beautiful <laughs> thing. It's a beautiful thing. Number ten. Yeah. Any messages you want to give? Anything you want to say in closing? Anything? Uh, anything you might have missed? Uh, uh, wh- whatever you want to say. Um, let's see. Um, I don't know. It's just like the main thing is that I just hope that there's some change out of all this. Yeah. God. Well, there's some change already. Some change. Go ahead. Yeah, I would love to see, um, I want to see law enforcement more interested in these things. Like, I don't know, for whatever reason, it kind of just seems to, like, go over their heads. They're not invested. And then I think that's what happens with minority groups, is that um, you you have to kind of get people personally invested in your cause, and they have to feel like they're familiar with it or that they, you know, have that connection to it. 
because um, otherwise it's just like, oh, those crazy Scientologists. You know, right. Like, hang on, there's actual, right. So there's actual crimes that have been committed that are going um, unpunished, that there is no justice occurring because of this huge system that um, we're kind of at the bottom of and that we, we don't have the power to um, sort of get our, our cases heard and get them and advance them. Like, so, for example, my dad hasn't even been brought in for questioning. Like, they've not even, the police have not even interviewed him. They haven't even, like, told him or contacted him. And, um, like, my, I originally did my police report in 2012. So I've waited pretty patiently for five years. Um, and nothing's come of it. And it just, it's very frustrating. Um, but I think, yeah, for some reason, uh, we're just not being heard yet. And I hope that, um, as this kind of continues to grow, that we do, that, you know, people, more and more people do connect to what our cause is and, um, try and get some help for these victims and, yeah, get our cases heard. That's all we want, really. You you pointed out earlier is that as a whole in in the world we're behind on um, how we handle these type of claims and these type of crimes. Um, well, certainly um, Australia is. We've had a lot of movement um, in recent years. Good. Um, we've had a royal commission into um, institutional responses to child sexual abuse reports. So this puts the responsibility back on these organizations um, as to what they did when it was reported to them. And, and I'm not seeing that in the U.S. Like I'm not seeing that kind of level of um, responsibility or, you know, like, whereas in Australia, I think it's like we, there seems to be a greater understanding. Um, of accountability. And accountability, yeah, definitely. And that's, you know, it's not always been that way, but there's certainly a lot of movements in the last few years, um, in the last five years. Um, yeah, but, like, why why these cases are stalled at LAPD um, and, you know, things that go unreported within Scientology, that people are discouraged from reporting things, um, that there's, like, this veil of, like, victim shaming and victim blaming. Uh, there's just so much work to be done there. Um, and it's going to take a lot more people being involved. And it's going to take law enforcement looking at it and seeing us as people, you know, that have experienced these things. Like, why do our cases not matter because we are Scientologists? Like, it just doesn't make sense to me. And I think this also brings to bear the, the point of uh, it's important. Now, now Sina made made the point, and Sina's right. You know, you got to be ready to do it for yourself. you got to be in the right mindset to do it, but you, you, the importance of reporting these crimes, if you can. Um, this is not, when I say this, I don't mean that to shame people or to, to tell people they're bad for not doing it, because that's never the message I want to relay. It's just so important, because we talked, I think you and I talked about it earlier in an interview, if I'm not mistaken, and Noah talked about it with Sina, and it's the whole thing. I've heard a lot of you guys uh, who've been through this say you thought it was just my thing to handle and it wasn't something that needed to worry about, but there's other people being hurt now too. And That's it's important right. to speak up. That's right. Um, I think reporting is important um, because um, there isn't, you know, it does take a long time for a victim to get to the point where they are 
able to metaphor because it's in itself it's a it's very emotional process um it's very scary it's uh it can be quite overwhelming and i think number one there needs to be counseling support that goes hand in hand with that excellent um, i think Point. counseling support to help um you know the person on their own journey and whether or not that uh, they do get to a point to where they go that they're willing to write a place support, um, that a counselor will sort of guide them through that and and out the other side as well and just have that ongoing support. I think that's really, really important, number one. Um, and, and it might not be for everyone. I mean, it's got to be what the victim is able to deal with. Uh, but I will say, so, and that's important, the, um, you know, that the, the victim feels protected and supported, that's number one as well. But um, in terms of, like, we don't have an infinite, infinite amount of time. Like, yes, we've got statute of limitations that are being listed now, right. which is great, and in recent years, which is fantastic. But eventually, these perpetrators die, and, you know, I just wouldn't want for people to have that regret. So I encourage the reporting. Um, and also, as you said, you know, how, uh, we, if there may be other victims. Right. And that's important, too, because um, it holds a lot more weight with the case if there's more victims, um, unfortunately. I mean, I think I, when I say unfortunately, I think that if it's just one victim, that should be enough. But that's not how the law works. Not how the law works, right? Um, law enforcement, yeah. So law enforcement will say, like, okay, well, that's fine. Uh, thank you for your information. If you don't have any anyone else to corroborate with you, if you don't have anyone else to say that this happened to them as well, then we're just we're just not that interested. Uh, so if it's in a situation where there could be other people, then absolutely um, that's important. All right. So, like, my dad would be, I'd say he'd be in his 60s now, in the early 60s. Um, and that's still young. That's still really young. But we're talking, like, five years have gone by now since I wrote my police report. So, like, how many more years does it take when they haven't even gotten him in for an interview? Do you know what I mean? Like Not even crazy. questioning, right? They haven't even questioned him. Uh, last I knew, they didn't even know where he was. Like, LAPD asked me, um, you know, last known address, da da da, and I gave them a whole bunch of information. Then I just simply, like, looked him up on Facebook. I found him on Facebook. So it's like, I can, I can point out exactly where he is. Um, but I don't know, like, why they can't just do that and find him and then just take the next step. I know that there's a lot of, like, sort of um, bureaucratic stuff they have to kind of jump over, hurdles, but at the same time, it just seems like, okay, we'll just get him in, ask him the questions, did he do it, and then just see what he says. Like, if you suspect someone has murdered somebody... You're going to question them. them pretty quickly. Yeah. Yeah, so, you know. Um, you know, mur murder's not a great thing, it's a final thing, but... What happened to you? I feel could be considered worse. It's yeah, something you live with. I mean, I certainly wouldn't compare, but uh, I know. I mean, murder is murder, but uh, yeah. I think the thing is, as well, is like while justice has uh, not occurred, it the trauma in a way continues. 
until um, you know there is that sort of resolution of like he's been held accountable for what he's done, it still is open. It's like an open wound. So how do you, you know, how do you heal from that? Well, it's like I, I quote, uh, <laughs> I quote Alex Gibney from Aftermath almost every episode. Now they have to be held accountable. They have to be. Yes. They have to be. You know who also is accountable for everything is David Miscavige. Straight yeah. to the top. This all doesn't happen yeah. if this isn't allowed to happen. Yeah, absolutely. There is a lot of people that. Um, Long line. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. And uh, what did he say? It was um, deliberate ignorance or something like that. Oh, willful ignorance, yeah. Yeah. It was a willful yeah. ignorance. ignorance. It's not affecting. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. Well, look, yeah. Uh, how can anybody, how can anybody know these stories exist and just not want to look at them? I mean, yeah. you're just, you're just, you're just, it's, it's denial. It's, it's, it's willful ignorance. It's all of those things. Uh, I don't know. I, I, I'm so grateful to you. I don't want to make you talk about this anymore. <laughs> uh, thank you so much. And um, I, I think a lot of people out there, including uh, Chantel and, and Ramina, would th- would be uh, very grateful for you uh, doing what you do, speaking out, and, and you are making a difference. So thank you. Thank you. Yeah, no problem. Stay on the line. Hang on. Okay, so that was Miriam Francis, part two. Uh, that's the completion of the interview. Oh, unbelievable. A lot of stuff uh, that I think needs to be said, a lot of information shared there. And uh, good good thing that she came on and uh, said the things she said, and I hope people hear it. Uh, next week, of course, on Thursday at 12 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, you'll hear part two. Uh, sorry, part 303 of Tara Riley's interview. And on Friday, part one with Christy Gordon. Uh, Until then, until next week, uh, stay connected. And uh, that about sums it up. If I speak for your followers, and I speak for your ex-followers, and I speak for the curious outsiders looking in, and you remain silent in the shadows and don't let your balls drop enough to come out and say something, then I say, who do you speak for, Mr. Miscavige? Anything on earth that says, don't listen to your mum and dad, don't talk to your mum and dad, that bad, yep. run. Absolutely believed his own bullshit. Now, does that mean he believed it from day one? I don't know. Hubbard reveals to them that he is the Antichrist. Scientology has not helped you. You have helped yourself. Yeah, I'm absolutely positive that happened because I was physically abused in Scientology. We're crossing the line into torture. Do you think there is a rape culture in Scientology? I think that there is a culture in Scientology that children are not children. So, yeah. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. 
Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.